may not know. You might know these things, but you may not know them. Did you know that over the past 13 years, one million Christ followers have given their lives for their faith? Over the last 13 years, one million people, because they love Jesus, have died for it. Over 200 million people are persecuted on a regular basis every year. 600 million churches are displaced every year because of their worship of Jesus. They're pushed out of their buildings, not able to meet together as we do. That there is one out of every 12 Christ follower is going to be persecuted this next year. That's worldwide. This, this is what we're up against in our world. We don't face that in our nation yet, but I think there may be a time that it's coming. Because I just recently, I don't know how many of you saw this, uh, I read the article and it was also on the news that George Washington University, their uh, multicultural center, is holding a seminar on um, how to combat Christian privilege. Yeah, Christian privilege. You all, you all have more privilege than people who are not Christ followers in this country. That's why you have better jobs, because you've got the privilege that, that we don't give to other people. That's why your life is so easy and carefree. You have no problems in this world because you have Christian privilege. Yeah, kind of sounds like we all know what that's all about, right? I, I'm, I'm not sure about you, but here's what I do know about the Christian, Christian privilege. That in the past 50 years, prayer and Bibles have been removed from public schools. The Ten Commandments and many crosses are being taken down in the public arena. Our politicians who are Christ followers are being mocked by news media outlets. That if you are a, a Christ follower, you are looked down on as being an imbecile in this country. And the far left, they're pushing their agenda so that they can do whatever they want to. There is a direct attack on biblical values and morals that Christ followers have held for thousands of years and we hold to be true to our lives and now we're being told that it's not true. That it's all a lie. And, and all that comes because we agree with God. You know what God says? God says something about sin. God calls sin what it is. You know what God calls sin? Sin. I know, and, when, and, if, and if you agree with God that some of the behavior that our country steps into and perpetrates, like abortion, we would call that sin, you're going to be labeled as being like a conservative nut job. Welcome to my world. Now, there, there are things that the Apostle John, he wants us to know, and, and he wants us to know the realities of knowing Jesus. Because when you know Jesus, it doesn't matter what the rest of this world has to say about anything. And we're, going to close, we're coming to the close of our study on uh, the first letter of John to the churches. And there's only four verses left. So this week, we're going to cover three of them. Next week, we'll cover the last one and finish off our study in the first 
letter of John. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to read those three verses. I'll read them to you. You can follow along on the screen or you can look it up in your Bible. And here's what it says. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. John's saying, we know that we know so that we may know. All about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And if you go back and if you think, because what John's kind of doing is he's going to bring a, a summary to what he has written to the church. He's going to kind of summarize what he has been saying. And the first thing that we know that John said is that um, he began the letter with his firsthand eyewitness account and testimony of who Jesus is. You'll find that in the first chapter. In chapter 2, verse 3, he wrote, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And then he writes to the father, fathers of, of the kids the, or the church because they know him who has been from the beginning. And then he writes to the children because they know the father. And then he says in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 14, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. And he concludes this letter, letter and he drives home his theme, and he sums up his purpose. In 5.13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And then he reiterates why he writes this in 5.15. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He writes those things twice right there. John wants us to be certain about these important truths. He is still countering the false teachers and their destructive claims of secret knowledge. That's what he's dealing with. There are people who have infiltrated into the church and they said, if you really want to know God, you have to know the, the secret things of God. And by the way, we're the only ones that know the secret things. The apostles don't know the secret things. They're not enlightened like we are. But we know the secret things. If anybody ever tells you that you don't have the fullness of God, that you're missing out on what God has for you because you don't know the secret things of God, call it what it is. BS. That stands for both snot. It's not true. It's horse roar. It's, it's a big fat lie. Because God has revealed everything you need to know about Him in His Word to us. There isn't anything that you can find out from God apart from the Word of God. So, that's where we're headed. And so today, in verses 18, 19, and 20, there is one sense John is giving us a review of what he's, he's given in the book so far, in his letter so far. And as you tend to read it, you might go like, all right, yeah, I, I got that, and yeah, got that, and I got that. And we think that we've... We've got all the lessons learned that John has for us. But he's coming back and he wants us to know some things that are really important for us to know. And so we'll go back to verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, 
But he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Here it is. It is that a Christ follower will not and is unwilling to continue to live in a perpetual state of sin. Do you get that? Do you get that when, when you step into faith with Christ, you are no longer wanting to sin. Sin is no longer a part of your DNA. God has changed your spiritual DNA from this whole arena of sin being a part of your life to sin not being a part of your life. You no longer have to sin. And what John doesn't say is just as important. He doesn't say that we will never sin again. Don't, you don't find him saying that. And you don't see him preaching or teaching a doctrine of sinless perfection. Because guess what? We're human. We're going to mess it up. And we're going to make a mess of things. And we're going to, we're going to violate God's law on some point or some level as, as we walk with Him. But what John is saying is, is that the desire in our heart has changed that we are no longer walking in the way that we used to walk with Him. The apostle is telling us why this is true. The reason a Christ follower cannot go on living in sin and doing what he knows is wrong is because he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Now, he who is born of God, that is not referring to the Christ follower. That is referring to the Son of God. He's the only one that can protect us. It's amazing how... When we take a look at what God's doing in, in our lives, sometimes we get the idea that we can go ahead and live our life without the work of the Son in our lives. We cannot continue on in sin because His, that is God's seed, remains in Him. The Lord Jesus Christ is dwelling in that person's heart and life, and thus he cannot go on in sin. The one who is born of God, the Holy Son of God, is dwelling in him, living in him, and keeping him. The love of Christ has an unbreakable hold on a person's life. He may struggle. He may be temporarily, he may fall. He may resist the change that the Spirit of God is attempting to make, but he cannot continue to do so. Because God is like the hound of heaven and he will not let you go. The one who is dwelling in us will bring us, bring to us circumstances and pressure that will make us realize what God is doing. And, and the mess that we are in, he's trying to correct. That's why he brings things into our lives. He wants to give us a hunger for holiness and righteousness so that we no longer have a desire for sin, but we have a desire for God. We have a desire for the things that God has placed before us, the things that he shows us in his word that he's saying, here is my word, live by it. Make it a part of your life. Don't walk a day without it because if you do, you're going to stumble. The person who doesn't experience a radical change in their thinking, in their desires, in their behavior, in their conduct, in their language, that person who claims to be a Christ follower but hasn't had a transformation of their life, John says, you're not really a genuine follower, you're a poser. 
You know to say the right things, but you can't live it out because you don't have the Spirit of God helping you to live in this way. And the result is, as John says, the evil one can never repossess the person who is walking with Christ. The devil can't get a hold of you. You need to know that. The evil one, of course, he's the devil. And he's, John says that the stronger one has now come and the bonds of the strong man have been broken and he can never repossess a Christ follower. We should all be going like, whoo, awesome. Man, that takes the weight off my shoulders because I'm, I kind of feel the devil nipping at my heels sometimes. Isn't that right? We do. We do feel it because the enemy can frighten us as he often does. And he can harass us and he can threaten us and he can make us believe that we are in his power and that we have to do certain things that are wrong. And he can create a desire and a passion within us that are so strong that we think we must yield to it. But that's all a lie. You know why it's a lie? Because Jesus said, This about Satan. He's the father of all lies. There is no truth that lies within him. He can't speak the truth. All he can do is because that's his native language is to lie to you. And so what you're hearing, it might sound right. It might sound good. It might sound like this is the thing to do. But if it's not from God, it's from the enemy. And if it's from the enemy, it's a lie. We all need, as Marissa said in our prayer time this morning, we all need the discernment of the Holy Spirit in our lives to be able to distinguish the voice of God from every other voice that's calling out to us. Because if you don't know the voice of God, you're going to hear something that sounds true-ish, but it's not true. There might be an ounce of truth smattered into it to make you think it's true, but it's not true. And then when you step in and you start to believe it, then you've given into what this, the, the spirit of this world is calling you to do. He wants you to yield to him. He's going to try and lure us, deceive us, as we have seen. And he, and he can even temporarily derail us and make us fall. But the great declaration of the scripture is the devil, devil can never make you sin. Once you know Jesus, the devil has lost his hooks on your life. You know, we talk, Jesus said that if if you believe in him, he will set you free and you will be free indeed. Do you know why that is? Because as soon as you put your faith in Christ, Jesus comes along with these big bolt cutters and those chains that the enemy has wrapped around your leg and on your life. Jesus cuts those things and he sets you free to live in him. You are no longer a prisoner of the enemy. He no longer has a grip on your life. You no longer have to sin. You no longer are given into his desires. You get to walk as a new creation in Christ. Paul helps us out in this when he wrote his letter to the Corinthian church. He said, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now, this is one of those great verses that we need to mark up in our Bibles. You need to memorize this verse. You need to be reminded of what God is doing in your life when temptation comes. Because God's made a promise to you. 
His promise is simple. That if you face a temptation, you need to know that that temptation is not something that's going to overtake your life. It's not too much for you. You can get out of it. You don't have to give into it. But the important fact is, is that sometimes we see that verse and we stop just a, bit, a, a tad shy of the reality of what God has for us. Because in this verse, God has given you a, a, a plan. He has laid something out for you that you can take hold of and you can say, I'm going to make this a part of my life every day. Because he says, I am going to provide an exit door for you when you are facing temptation and you're weak. There's the exit door right there. And when the temptation comes and you're in the middle of temptation, there's a bright sign over here that's flashing off and on and it says exit. And all you have to do is turn and look and say, Lord, is that the exit you have for me? And God's going, you know it is. Go through that door. Exit. Get out of there. God also has made a promise to us in our weakness. You know, because you, you, we, we all always have this idea that there's this cosmic battle going on. It, it's, you know, it's, it's Star Wars. May the force be with you, right? We're going like, I need the force. God's going like, that's hogwash. You don't need the force. You got the Holy Spirit. He lives right in you. That's not that hog. I mean, you know, listen, it's a good storyline. You have to kind of get through all the, the mumbo-jumbo of New Age thinking that's associated with all of it. But the basic story is good versus evil, right? And what, but, but the picture that George Lucas paints is, is that, that it's, it's a flip of the coin. Who's going to win? The dark side or the good side? Who's going to win? We don't know who's going to win. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that Jesus already won. This battle's done. Put your lightsaber away and just make sure you're following where God wants you to go. Because if you stay on the straight and narrow path, you're going to be walking in holiness. Wide is the path that leads to destruction, the Bible tells us. The narrow path is the one that follows Christ where he wants us to go. It's not an easy road to take. But he has promised that he will lead us in all righteousness. All we have to do is be willing to follow. We can endure whatever the, the, the enemy throws at us because God is on our side. Matter of fact, Paul wrote in Romans 16 this. He says, the God of, of peace, get this, will soon crush the Satan under your feet. Grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I mean, like, we're going to have the grace of Jesus. But get this, who is it? It's the God of peace. All right, who's going to crush him under our feet? God is. We're not going to crush him. God's going to crush him under our feet. We get to be a part of it because it's happening right under our feet. And that's what happens when you're walking in the spirit of God. You are no longer walking in the flesh. You are no longer giving into the things of the flesh. You're giving into the things of the spirit. And you're saying, Holy Spirit, I need you to lead my life so that I can crush. I can feel the crunch of the enemy under my feet. We need to trust God when he says these things. We need to trust God that when he says he's going to do it, that he's going to do it. 
We don't keep asking when you're going to do it. We just know that he's going to do it. If, he's going to do, if God says he's going to do it, it's going to be done. He's not like us. He's not a procrastinator. He didn't procrastinate for a million years before he decided to get around to doing creation. He said it and it was done. John really wants us to get the points that, that, that he's making. There's this point about not living in sinful behavior, not living, if we are truly of God, we are not going to keep on sinning. And, and, and Jesus made the point of that because in John chapter 14, as Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross, he's talking to his disciples and he's given them a little bit of a picture of what their life should be like as they walk in the newness of who he will make them. He says to them, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you're going to obey what I say. You see, and that's where, we, where, where we've gone wrong in, as a nation. Because I can tell you that the guys that put the Constitution together, I can tell you the guys that came from across the sea over here to start a new nation, they wanted to do it under God. They wanted to create a nation that followed the laws of God. But the problem comes in is that when there are things that God says that we should do, we should obey him on, and we as a nation say, no, that's not a big deal. We've got a problem. And that problem started with the church. Did you know that the church is responsible for the problems that our nation has right now? This, the problems that we have in regards to abortion and same-sex marriages and gender identity, all those issues that we're facing right now that our government is telling us we need to get on board with, we can't point our finger at the government and say, it's your fault. We need to point the finger at ourselves and say, we messed this up about 100 years ago. Because about a hundred years ago, there were mainline churches who were coming to the Word of God and they're reading things and they're going like, well, I'm not really sure that's what God meant. Fornication, sleeping with someone before you get married. You know, I mean, it's all, if you're going to get married, it's okay. Don't beat yourself up about it. God still loves you. You know what that's called? That's called stepping onto the slippery slope. When you step onto the slippery slope, it's just, and you're gone. Because the next thing you're doing, you're going like, hey, you know what? It's a really bad thing to kill dogs. But we're going to murder countless thousands of babies. But dogs, no, they need, don't you dare do that to that little dog, but we're going to kill those babies. You see, that's where we've come to. And the problem is ours. And we need to confess that to the Lord. We're the ones that need to get on our knees before God. And we need to ask God to forgive the sins of our fathers. Obedience is the name of the game. Apostle Paul put it pretty plainly when he was writing to his, his young friend Timothy. In his second letter to Timothy, he said this. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who those who are his 
and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And, and we, we really like, the church really likes this verse because what we're trying to do is we're trying to get out from under the umbrella of responsibility that God has placed on the church. Because what we say is, well, the, the God's firm foundation stands because bearing the seal. And the Lord knows who his are. And, and you know, I know that so-and-so isn't really living up to the standards of what it means to be a Christ follower. And they haven't really been doing that since they made the proclamation with their own mouth and said, you know, that they, they are following Jesus now, but their life doesn't show it. Who am I to judge that person? After all, the Bible tells us not to judge. Boy, did that ever get taken out of context. We in the church are supposed to judge those in the church. Just in case you didn't know that. I'm not giving you permission to do that. God is. He's telling you to take a look around and look at the people that you go to church with, the people who name the name of Jesus, and you look at their lives and you go like, uh, not only are you not bearing any fruit, but the fruit that you are bearing, it's rotten fruit. It's no good for anything. You need to make some changes in your life. Galatians 6.1 tells us that those people that we, who are caught in sin, those of us who are spiritual, should go and gently restore them. You see, there's where the responsibility is. And you can't tell if somebody, I mean, you can't go like, oh, ooh, they shouldn't be, oh, no, that, yeah, ooh. But I, who am I to judge them? You see, that, that's what... That's what the Bible tells us is that, that a part of us being together with Christ and naming the name of, of the Lord is that we depart from iniquity, from sin. It's not like we try not to do it. It says depart. There is a, a command there. Leave it behind you. I have a dog at my house, and he does not belong to me. I'm just telling you that. One of my girls, who turns 25 next week and is on a trip with her mom to Texas and is blonde and works at Sprouts, not naming names, four years ago, she felt sorry for this dog because somehow she found herself standing in the pet connection looking at him. And he looked up to her with these bad, sad puppy eyes and he says, you need to take me home. And she said, okay, I will. And so she brought him home. And then she was home for a short while and then she moved to Texas and left her dog in my house that I had to feed and take care of. And he's neurotic if I just look at him wrong, he'll run across and sit on the hill and look at me for three hours. I call him. I try and entice him to come and be in my house and to dine with me. And he says, oh, no, you're up to no good. I know I was going somewhere with this little talk. I'm going to get there, believe me. That dog will never change. He was abused. He was beaten. 
I, I take out a 24-foot-long extension ladder, and he thinks I'm going to beat him with it, and he runs off. When God comes into our lives, we have all been taking a beating. We have all been abused by the enemy of our soul. And all he wants to do is beat us down. But because we have been rescued out of the pet connection, God loves us and he will transform our lives. How's that for getting the connection? Give me enough time, I can get there. Let's move on to verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You know, um, this is the certainty of relationship that every disciple of Jesus should declare. This is the declaration we make. We know that we are of God. You should be saying that to your friends. I know I'm of God. And you know what they're going to think? You are an arrogant human being. And you're going like, no, I'm not arrogant. I'm being honest. I'm being truthful because I, that's where I know. And, and, and that's what people say. That's the problem with you Christians. You think you're so much better than everybody else. You think you're so much superior. You're so superior. And we answer, no, we're not superior. We're just separated. We're not better, we're just blessed with a blessing that is open to everyone who wants to receive it. And that's what makes a Christ follower talk this way. We know, John says, that we are from God. The fundamental separation has occurred between us and the world's system of thinking and belonging. That we now are of God and we are walking in His direction and going with Him. And the world, on the other hand, is lies in the power of the evil one, which means that the world absolutely hates our guts and is opposed to everything that we stand for. Because you cannot be a part of the world and love the things of God. And you cannot be a part of God's kingdom and love the things of this world. God has called us out. He has called us to leave these things. And you can see how this kind of position that we're on and in with, with God, in our relationship with God, now butts up against everything of this world because the world says, you need to be busy. This is a complex world in which we live in. And we live in this world. We were born in this world and we grew up in it. But now because we are Christ followers, we no longer act like we're a part of this world. A fundamental separation has occurred and we are no longer in the same relationship. The evil one has control of this world. And, and Paul reminded the Ephesian church that that's who we were. We used to be just like them. We need to remember that's, that's who we used to be. And, and Paul helps us to know that. He says in Ephesians 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Once walked. Get that? Past tense. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of humankind. 
When we take a look at everything that's going on around us with all the people and we're wondering why do these people behave the way they behave, the reason the way that they behave the way they do is simply because they don't have Christ in their lives to help them behave differently. What we're asking for them is to have behavioral modification. And behavioral modification never works. It's a transformation of the spirit and the soul that makes a difference of who we are. And that's where God wants us to go. So when we start talking to people about our relationship to God, what we do is we throw the most offensive thing we can throw in their face. It's the message of the cross of Christ. Listen, they're going to love you. The world's going to love you. You go and you start talking about the love of God, about the grace of God, how God wants to take and mold you and shape you into who he wants you to be. They, they love you talking about all those different things. They love it when you come and just go like, oh, God is so good and he loves you so deeply. And isn't his grace good? And they're, they're like, mmm, mmm, yes. He's awesome. You know, because we say God is good. That's what they say. But as soon as we come to the place where we say to them, here's, you've got one of two choices. You are either, you're confronted with one of these two choices. You're either of God or you are of the devil. Either you are led by the spirit of God or you are controlled by the spirit of this world, bound by satanic forces, following satanic philosophies. And when you say that to people, guess what? You have lost a voice with them because they no longer like you because they don't want to be told that they either have to make a choice to follow God and obey Him or they're going to be walking right with their father of lies, Satan himself. They don't like that message. They hate that message. They don't want anything to do with it. And here's the, here's the problem. The problem is like Paul has said. He said in 1 Corinthians The natural person, that's a person not born of the Spirit of God. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You wonder why they don't get this spiritual stuff? You wonder why they think abortion is okay? Because they cannot spiritually discern that it's wrong, that it's evil, that it's wicked. Because they don't have the Spirit of God in them. So what's the hope for them? Where's the hope? I mean, if if the Spirit of God doesn't live in them, if they can't understand spiritual things, what is going to happen? Well, just think about what's going on. I just want to point you to some of the things that's happening because of the control Satan has on this world. Think of the violence, the terrifying tensions that have been gripping our cities for the last couple of years and the seething, and it seethes constantly below the surface. Our cities are nothing but a seething pool of human misery, ready to erupt at a moment into a riot, into violence, death in the streets. Think of the hate and the horror and the bitterness that is rampant in the human life today. In family circles, I mean, it's just behooving to me how these people are driving a van full of kids off a cliff and killing them. It's breaking up families. It's separating husbands from wives, mothers and fathers from children. Think of the brutal wars and even more brutal weapons of death and destruction that are being held in the closets around this world today, ready to be unleashed on the world. 
This all comes from our man's cleverness and his evil ingenuity. It's, it's what we think is, is great, but we can see the mark of the murderer who is the liar, the Satan, everywhere. In the persecuted church in the Near East, in the Far East, in Syria, in the awful burning and, and um, manip- uh, destroying of the human bodies of these young men and women who follow Christ and children. And it makes us sick to our stomach. And it's all the work of the murderer. Jesus says this. He says, see how he holds the world in his grasp. The history of, history of the human race is one unending story of brutal violence, murder, war, and death. And this comes from one place. It comes from the enemy of our soul. The one that John's writing about here who has a grip upon humanity in the world. And if you think that we can just go on in our lives, living like we've lived, without making some kind of impact on our world for the kingdom of God, we are just fooling ourselves. It's going to be at our doorstep in in just a matter of years. We've seen the deceit everywhere in public life, the lying, the cheating, the twisting, the distortion of truth in homes and classrooms, in Congress, our courts, and the highest offices of the land. We are faced with a spectacle of men and women who have been elected to office and trusted to perform their public duties honestly, who openly, fragrantly, blatantly misuse funds and mistreat their powers and then defend themselves in doing so. God is calling the church to make a difference. The reason why Jesus established the church is because he knew the only hope for humanity was going to be his church. We are the hope for this world. Verse 20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and He has given us an understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. This is, this is our hope right here. And this is the hope, the message that we have for the people who live in our community, who we know around this this. County and in this state, people who do not know Jesus. Because what John is telling us here is that we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. We have an understanding that they don't know. We know the truth of God and we are to live in the truth. We are to declare the truth. We are to present the truth because the truth is without God, there is eternal death. With God, there is eternal life. Notice how many times the word true occurs. To know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. This is the true God in eternal life. The word true is actually reality. Here is the reality. Here is the great rock upon which everything rests. Our faith does not rest upon men's guesses, 
Not upon those explorations of human knowledge called philosophy. Not on clever ideas. Not on untested theories. It rests solidly upon the great events of God's actions in history. It rests on fact. And the fact is, is that Jesus went to the cross and he died so that we could present to him, to the world, who can save. And he's the only one that can save. He's the only one that can declare us righteous before our Father. There is a historical process here. The Son of God came. John says we saw him. We felt him. We lived with him. We can testify in every possible way that the Son of God came in the historical process of time. Further, the practical results of that is he gave us a new understanding. We began to see life as it really is. He stripped off all of its veils, took away its illusions, dispelled the myths and, and the vagueness. He removed the mist from our eyes, and caused, which caused men to grope through life like blind men. He clarified life. He gave us an understanding, and he told us what was true. The glorious privilege that follows is we are in him who is true. We not only know him, we live in him. We are a part of his life. We share his thinking. We have the mind of Christ in all things. And that is what Christian privilege really is. That's what we know. We know what privilege is. The privilege is is that we are called sons and daughters of God, of the Most High. The privilege is that our sins will never be held against us. The privilege is that we get to live in this present grace that God has bestowed upon us. The privilege is that we know the peace of Christ that passes all understanding. The privilege is that we can come together and we can come from so many diverse backgrounds and come together in unity around the Spirit. That's the privilege, is the unity of the Spirit in our lives. Yeah, we are privileged. We're privileged because Christ gave his life for us so we don't have to live in any other way the glory of Christ's love and his comfort the warmth of his presence and his peace is in our hearts this John says is the true God we are in his son Jesus Christ therefore we are in him this is the true God therefore eternal life abundant eternal life amen God is calling today. I don't know where you're at, but the message that he has for us is if you were caught in the, in the bonds of the enemy who has a hold of your life through whatever chains it is, Jesus says, I'm cutting you free. You just have to be free. Maybe it is that you don't know for sure that Christ is your Savior. Maybe what you need today is just a little bit of God's presence in your life to reassure you that he walks with you no matter where you go. So the worship team is going to come and we're going to lead you in some songs. And all I want you to do this morning is I want you to hear what God is saying to you and then respond to God. Do not respond to me. You respond to the Spirit of God. And if you need prayer, you come up here. If you are are needing healing of any kind, the oil is here. We have elders who will be at the front. They will be available to pray with you, pray over you. This front is is open for you to come and, and meet with God. Our Father, 
We thank you that you care deeply about every aspect of our life, that there isn't anything that is hidden from your sight, that you know our heart right now. You know the intention of our heart. You know the desires of our heart. You know who it is that we are. You know what we need right now. You know how much we need you. You know where we're lacking. You know the things that are holding us back. You know the things that we're embarrassed about. You know the things that have got a grip on us that we need freedom from. And so I just pray today that you would work in the heart of every person here, that their life would be transformed by your spirit, that you would come, you would bring peace, you would bring joy, you would bring contentment, you would bring anything and everything that what we need to know you better and to live in accordance with your word, that we'd be obedient. So come and do your work in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' great name. Amen.